Hello and welcome back to the Dyson House podcast by the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. I am your host, Tom Ackhurst. Since April, millions in Hong Kong have taken to the streets in a rolling protest movement that has presented an extraordinary challenge to Chief Executive Carrie Lam's government. Initially a response to a bill that would have allowed for the extradition of criminal suspects to mainland China, the protest movement has extended its gaze and is now in search of far-reaching political reforms. But with Lam's government refusing to offer any concessions and Chinese military forces gathering at the border, there seems growing reason to be concerned about the trajectory of this crisis. Today I'm joined by the University of Hong Kong's Professor John Burns, who is speaking with us direct from Hong Kong. Thanks for joining us, John. So, John, you're currently an emeritus professor at the University of Hong Kong. How did your career lead you there? And when did your interest in Chinese politics begin? Well, I think it all started when I was an undergraduate, which was in the late 1960s. And China was going through the Cultural Revolution, and I was studying politics. And I was intrigued that a political system could be tearing itself apart, as we seem to see from overseas. And so I think that really piqued my interest. And then I started reading about it, and I realized the kinds of things that I thought I knew about China were completely wrong. So I, you know, got involved in a PhD program, and that took me here. That was about that was in 1975, so this is, I've been here ever since, more or less, continuously. And you're currently based in Hong Kong, but have you been living in mainland China before that? I have been, but um, not for extensive periods of time. I would say six months or a year at a time doing research there. Uh, my field is basically Chinese politics including Hong Kong politics. So, and I speak uh, Putonghua, and I do research, you know, using Chinese materials. I should also tell you that um, although I was born in the U.S., um, I am not a U.S. citizen. Um, And I became a Chinese citizen with a Hong Kong passport um, about six years ago. For people that aren't entirely familiar with Hong Kong, I guess the core question is why is there a liberal democratic city in the middle of the world's most powerful authoritarian state? This is a very, very critical question. Yes, it is liberal, not democratic, I would say. Mm. It is certainly liberal. Um, And that's basically because Hong Kong was for 150 years a British colony. And especially as Hong Kong's end game played out as a colony in the 80s and 90s, the colonial authorities uh, were keen to foster a kind of more liberal environment in Hong Kong. And so this, and so then in 1997, when Hong Kong became a part of once again a part of China, actually it was part of China. Uh, before the British took it, but it was—it's you know once again a part of China. Then a 
political system called One Country, Two Systems was devised. And so Hong Kong is the second system. And we have a high degree of autonomy according to our constitution. Um, and we are, you know, in charge of most of our domestic uh, affairs, not defense, not um, foreign affairs. These are the, the province of the central government. Also, political reform, which is a huge issue now in Hong Kong, and constitutional issues are also the prerogative of the central government. So, I mean, this is a little bit of history, I guess, that it helps to explain. I would also say that, you know, we transitioned from colony to special administrative region of uh, the People's Republic of China in 1997 without reforming our colonial institutions. Mm. So here we are, many years later, with an economy, an education system, a civil service, and political institutions that were designed by the British and that are, I would argue, colonial. So that one country, two systems arrangement you alluded to there emerged in the context of a far stronger global Britain. So how does that arrangement endure today when we have a weaker Britain and a China that is blatant in its intent to assert hegemony over its neighbours and the wider Asia region? So I guess um, I wouldn't focus so much on the power of the UK as I would the changing position of China. This um, arrangement was negotiated in the early 1980s when China was uh, much poorer than it is today and when, it's, when it was just beginning to look outward and to engage with the global community and global economy. And as we know, China then has grown tremendously in terms of its um, economy, in terms of its geopolitical position. And these things make the liberal kind of Hong Kong that we have today more of a paradox. So in the early 80s, the one country, two systems formula was laid down in our mini-constitution, the basic law. And so we have been following that. The mainland has been following that. And um, now we see increasingly that um, people in Hong Kong are critical of the colonial nature of our institution. So on the one hand, we do have the liberalism that you mentioned, which is a lot of uh, human rights, which are highly valued by people in Hong Kong. Also, we had um, access to the internet and all these sorts of things, which are denied to many people across the border. So it, um, but we do still have colonial political institutions that mean that the vast majority of people in Hong Kong may not participate. They don't select our um, government. They, even if they vote in legislative council elections, they are disenfranchised by the overwhelming nature of business representation. And even if one of their candidates gets elected, 
then the government may ban them, kick them out, or, or something like this, as has happened during the current legislative term. Six people have been removed for the um, in the current legislative term. So all of these colonial institutions, on the one hand, sit rather uncomfortably with um, the liberalism that you spoke of. Now, remember, I mean, uh, the China is um, quite critical of this liberalism. They, you know, this is something that we inherited from the UK. This is not something that was, is practiced on the mainland. And so we see a kind of, here we have a kind of authoritarian system meeting a liberal system, not democratic, but a liberal system, mm. and the conflict is clear for all to see. It kind of seems like there's two points of concern for Hong Kongers at the moment. The increasing Chinese influence or interest in affecting Hong Kong's internal affairs and the legacy of the colonial influence that comes through the, the arrangement between Britain and, and China. So in that sense, I kind of want to get an idea of how Hong Kong natives kind of conceptualize their national identity is there fundamentally a vision for for democracy in hong kong and how does that marry any kind of attachment to china, mainland china so this is a very important question if you look at the identity issue it is pretty clear that younger people especially those under 30 you know, overwhelmingly do not perceive themselves as Chinese citizens. We have a lot of polling data on this. They perceive themselves more as Hong Kongers. The older generation, I think, does not share this view, and that's what the polling data seems to show. So this this um, creates conflict with um, the mainland, of course, um, so identity politics is one of the huge issues that we are facing. Um, the government, um, we have attempted some kind of political reform in the past to kind of shake off these uh, colonial institutions, and the reforms have failed. Um, we had a major campaign of reform in 2014. Uh, this uh, did not work. Uh, the Communist Party basically says, okay, we promised you universal suffrage for electing the, um, your leader and for electing the legislature, but we are going to choose the candidates that you may then vote on. And I think this has been one of the major sticking points. So um, there have been attempts to... Um, to reform the institutions, but they have largely failed so far. Remember, it's not just the politics, it's also these other things, the civil service, the education, and the economy. We have, a, we have you know, per capita, a huge number of US dollar billionaires in Hong Kong, mm. and they own, like, you know, there are, let's see, 93 of them. I see in a report, and they own 86% 
of the city's GDP, assets worth that. So there's huge concentration of wealth. And these billionaires were created by the colonial system, yep. empowered by the colonial system. And how does that, that uh, econ- or the financial role that Hong Kong plays in terms of China's engagement with the world, how does that inform China's response to this unfolding um, popular disturbance in Hong Kong? Well, there's several things. Um, On the one hand, Hong Kong's role as a financial center is increasingly marginalized. Financial center for China, I would say. Mm. Um, the, The mainland is developing its own financial capacity capacity and has stock markets in Shanghai and Shenzhen, which uh, list and these sorts of things. So that is being marginalized. On the other hand, however, a huge number of the mainland elite have parked their assets in Hong Kong in trusts. For example, I saw a figure the other day that some trillions of U.S. dollars are here and they are, you know, in, invested in real estate, in trusts and so forth. And so this, it, this is a kind of reason to continue the current arrangement if the governments, the central and local government, can convince the people of Hong Kong that it's in their interests. So now looking more closely at this enormous protest movement that has emerged in Hong Kong and has been continuing for some three months now, uh, I want to get an idea of what are the, the key demands or expectations of that protest movement? Have they changed? Are they coherent? And are they answerable for the Hong Kong government? So um, as the protest movement has developed, um, it has focused on five demands. And the entire protest movement was kicked off by the government's attempt to introduce an extradition bill um, to allow us to extradite fugitives to the mainland, to Taiwan, and to Macau. And the government did this without considering the extent to which the arrangements they were proposing would be accepted by the people of Hong Kong. And in fact, there was huge pushback. Even their strongest supporters, the business community, said, no, 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 we do not want to be extradited to the mainland for mainland define crimes and a mainland legal system that we do not trust. So completely withdrawing this extradition bill is one of the demands. The government has refused to do this. There are four others. I mean, one is we've seen considerable police violence. There have um, excessive violence, I would say, and misconduct in the course of these three months. And one of the demands is to establish an independent commission to inquire into this. Mm. Another demand is to free the people that have been arrested for rioting, the protesters. Um, Another one is to stop referring to a particularly violent episode on June 12 as a riot. This is significant because if you're charged with rioting, you can spend years and convicted, you can spend years in jail. And then more recently, 
since about July 1, a demand for political reform and shaking off these colonial ins, uh, in, political institutions has emerged. The, the basic law promises Hong Kong universal suffrage, that we can elect our leader, that we can elect our legislators, and this so far has not happened. Hmm. So the more radical protesters are saying, okay, we have these five demands, we want them all. The government has said, absolutely not. This is the local government. We give you none of these. We won't even withdraw the bill. Hmm. We have told you, well, the ball, the bill is dead or the bill is, we're not going to do anything about it in the next few months. So the government's refusal to accept any of these demands is strongly backed by the central government. Now, you said, how realistic are these demands? I think two of them could be acted on by the government immediately. One of them is to withdraw the bill. I, I do not understand why the government is being intransigent on this, except to say, oh, well, we do not react to violence. Yet they have already reacted to violence. So this is, this is mm. nothing new. Mm. And the other thing is to establish an independent commission of inquiry into police misconduct, which could be more broader into the entire extradition bill fiasco. Those are feasible, I would say. Right. The, the, the police have said that if you establish an independent commission into our misconduct, we will stop you know, fighting on your behalf for the government. And the government is worried about this. The central government is worried about this. The police are a colonial police force, 30,000, very large, a paramilitary force. There is lots of evidence of misconduct, I would say, which is you can see it in video investigations done by independent uh, observers. So this is a problem, but... This can be framed in different ways. So the government, according to the information we have that came in overnight, you know, the government is just sitting on its hands and hoping that the entire thing will go away. Yeah, so casting our minds back to that first demand, which is in relation to the extradition bill, would an extradition agreement between Hong Kong and mainland China function appropriately or... Would it just be an instrument for China to better its political objectives in Hong Kong? Because I think this this question kind of speaks to where Hong Kong's political system is at the moment. Yes, I think this is one of the the worry of the people of Hong Kong is about how such an extradition bill would operate. Now, according to the proposal. Um, the chief executive would have to approve of extradition requests that came from the mainland, and a judge would have to approve of this. But we have seen, I think people would argue that we have seen that our leaders are amenable to pressure from Hong Kong, I mean from the mainland, not from Hong Kong, yeah. that's the problem, amenable to of pressure from the mainland, and so there is a worry that if this happened, um, the, the government, the mainland government would simply say, okay, we want you to extradite this guy um, for a traffic violation, but in fact, it's a political matter. Things mm -hmm. like this. 
The government has said, well, we won't extradite people on political matters. We won't ex. Oh, after the businessmen complained, they said, okay, we won't extradite any white-collar criminals. Well, this is, again, uh, an outrageous claim to make, which just feeds into the to the fury of people about the inequality of Hong Kong and about um, the situation here today. Hmm. There's been some concern around surveillance and the prospect of a government clampdown on, it, on the internet. How, how have communication technology played a role in the protests? How have they been coordinated? And is there a coherent leadership? So, uh, yes, it's interesting to see that, I mean, overwhelmingly, the, the single largest group, age group, are millennials of the protesters. I mean, they are under 30, and they are using advanced technology such as Telegram and another app, LIHKG, and other things like this, mm-hmm. to make decisions about what to do. These are, these are applications that allow a huge number of people to have a say, and then they come to a consensus. So it is a kind of leaderless group, and this is a problem for the Hong Kong government. The Hong Kong government has arrested people that have previously led such protests. You know, we have 1,000 people have been arrested already. Um, They're mostly out on bail. Um, They have been arrested at the protests. But unlike the protests in 2014, which focused on political reform, our, our Occupy movement, which had very clear leaders. This one does not. So we have lots of people um, getting involved, and we now have the technology to for people to share views, to vote, to indicate what it is that they want to do, and, so, and then to publish what they want to do on these fora. And so this is, so the, the rest of us are kind of following along in these things, these, with this technology. Of course, this can ha- happen because Hong Kong is complete, completely connected to the internet, mm. unlike the mainland. Mm. The Great Firewall on the mainland does not extend to Hong Kong. This is part of the liberal environment that you talked about at the very beginning. Right, and you've spoken about concerns over police conduct and Amnesty International in particular has said that the Hong Kong police's response has potentially been disproportionate to the action of the protesters. So I'm wondering, is Hong Kong's police force maintaining public order or is it carrying out political work? Yes, this is another issue. It isn't just amnesty. The New York Times video investigations, which have looked at the June 12th violence and have looked at a July 21st episode, especially when gangsters were used by the government to beat up protesters, Mm. at least they serve that purpose. I mean, this indicates that the police you know, are less than professional. They, they describe themselves as professional, and we hear our government leaders, you know, they said this yesterday um, in a news conference to the rest of us. I mean, basically, the, the, the 
the problem is that the police can be provoked, and when provoked, they take revenge. Now, it's a group of 30,000 people. It's a huge group. And it is being led for political purposes. I mean, consider, for example, on July 1, when the protesters, a small group of protesters, staged what I would call a slow-motion break-in to our Legislative Council building, which they eventually broke in after many hours, in which the police just stood there and watched. You know, they, they stood there and watched, Eventually, they broke through these, you know, the uh, barriers and glass. It took hours for them to do this. Now, this is definitely selective policing, political policing, relying on gangsters. And Yun Long is another example of political policing. At the in the Yun Long MTR station, there were police officers there who walked away. Police cars passed by, and no one got out. And the police let this happen. Now, you know, uh, they argue that, oh, we were, we were stretched. We didn't have the manpower. The, uh, the hotline was clogged and all this kind of thing. This is why we need an independent commission to find out exactly what's happened and the extent to which the police are being used for political purposes. I believe they are. I believe, and, and you know, I know many police officers, and I believe that they are upset with this. You know, mm. they're not being allowed to do their job professionally and properly. They are rather doing it for political purposes, the government's political purposes, mm. both the central and the local. Just looking at the intransigence of the Lamb government and its inability thus far to respond to the demand of protesters, what does that say to the role of the mainland Chinese government in influencing political realities in Hong Kong? So this is, again, an important question. Uh, overnight, a tape has emerged of the, our chief executive uh, talking to a group of businessmen and which she basically said, well, you know, my hands are tied. This has become a national security issue. Um, I can't even resign. I can't accept any of the five demands. I can't do anything political, uh, you know, to, to try to resolve this. Um, this is entirely in the hands of the central government. Now, I think this is... Um, a very un uh, unfortunate that she perceives the situation this way. She is a retired civil servant. She is somebody, and she's being advised by other civil servants. And for them, you know, following orders and hierarchy are very important. But this, as everyone knows, requires a political solution. There are things that she can do, I would say, such as withdraw the bill and say sometime down the road we are going to establish a commission to look into this entire episode. She can do this. I don't understand why she doesn't do this. If, if the central government says you're insubordinate, then they should fire her. She should leave. So she does have agency. This is what I'm telling you. Okay. She perceives that she doesn't, uh, at least in her public comments. I think this is very unfortunate. The longer this goes on, 
the deeper the mistrust, the deeper the lack of legitimacy the government and the police have. And this is a disaster for Hong Kong that prides itself on the rule of law. And what's your rating of the international community's response to the, to the crisis? Could they be doing more? I guess my position is that this is an internal matter. I mean, Hong Kong is a part of China, and this should be resolved by the mainland government and the um, Hong Kong, the people of Hong Kong, and that foreigners should not be playing a role here. So, as I said, I do not think it is appropriate for Hong Kong people to be going to the U.S. Congress, going to the U.S. President, going to other foreign countries, and demanding that they intervene. Now, from the U.S. position, of course, um, the U.S. is apparently involved in a kind of uh, war, um, a, uh, even a cold war of sorts, that involves trade, that involves the relationship with Taiwan, that involves the South China Sea, that involves dominance, I guess, and the extent to which the U.S. is willing to share power. Mm. So I understand why um, foreign countries, especially the United States, would use Hong Kong to needle um, China. And it is absolutely the true that foreign powers have a huge stake in Hong Kong. They have investments in Hong Kong. They um, operate their businesses on the mainland, often through Hong Kong. They resolve conflicts in Hong Kong. We have a good mediation system, and we have a um, you know, and we have the rule of law. So all of these things mean that that uh, business people, foreign business people, do have a stake in Hong Kong. So I understand why they would then go to their governments and say, can't you do something about this? Uh, we need to have it resolved. But it is basically an internal matter. We've seen the massing of mainland China military forces on the Hong Kong border. How likely is a, a Chinese military intervention in Hong Kong? Well, in my view, as of today, it is not that likely, and the reason for that is that the cost of such a thing would be staggering. We have seen more PLA troops on what the central government said was a routine rotation uh, coming to Hong Kong in the last week. I mean, these are uh, People's Liberation Army troops. Mm. I'm not aware that if it's a rotation, then the ones who were here should have left. I did not see that they left. So it may be beefing up the garrison in Hong Kong. Uh, but this would, this would have a huge consequences for Hong Kong. It would basically destroy the one country, two system system that we have here. It would mean martial law. It would mean uh, curfews. It would mean the end of uh, our access to the internet. You know, the free media would be shut down, and there would be a concerted effort then by the Communist Party to remold Hong Kong in the mainland's image. So how could this happen? This could happen if the Hong Kong government invited the PLA in, if it was unable to manage uh, um, you know, protest or something like this. Last night, the chief executive said this, that she was not going to do this. This was as of last night. 
or, or a few days ago. It could also, the PLA could themselves, the central government could decide that because national security and national unity are threatened, um, they need to uh, send the PLA in to restore and prevent turmoil. Um, what is turmoil? Uh, you know, a definition of this is, it's in the basic law, but it has never actually been defined. So I think we're not there yet. Okay, so you think it's unlikely we'll see a Chinese military intervention, but the Hong Kong political system is seems unable to accommodate any of the demands of the protest movement. So in that in that context, how do you see this crisis ending? The political system seems unable to manage the politics of this at the moment, and this is because we have a very hierarchical system. Which, in which the leadership, this is the leader's per, perception and her advisor's perception. But my own view is that there are things, there are political things that could be done, and it requires people of courage to do them. Where are the people of courage in our leader, leaderless government? I mean, I just do not understand that. You can see that people who are outside government are making all kinds of recommendations on two of these five issues. I do not understand why our chief executive doesn't simply say, okay, I accept those two demands. Beijing says you're insubordinate, you're fired. She says, okay, bye-bye. What hope is there for democracy in Hong Kong going into the future? So this depends how you define democracy. I mean, you know, there are many, many, many different ideas about democracy, and in no system that I'm aware of does it work perfectly or as it is supposed to work. So we, in Hong Kong, the Communist Party has said that, yes, you know, universal suffrage is um, provided for in in the Constitution for Hong Kong, uh, but this means that the party will choose the candidates, nominate the candidates for positions, and then we will let you choose among them. Um, So I think this is the kind of um, leadership selection system, I don't know whether you, I mean, some people would say that's not democratic at all. Mm. Um, Other people would say, well, it does provide for universal suffrage and that had we had this kind of system introduced, you know, the government tried to introduce this in 2014, if we'd had this kind of system, we might not be where we are now. Well, having observed this Hong Kong experience where an educated public informed about human rights and liberal ideas has refused to kneel to the demands of the central government or the expectations of the central government, What does that say about the role of political ignorance in maintaining the stability of the authoritarian Communist Party regime in mainland China? This is another interesting question. Of course, the, the Communist Party, in its management of Hong Kong, has demonstrated various blindness and incapacity. I mean, in 2003, when they when the party was supporting the local government to introduce anti-treason and subversion laws in Hong Kong, Hong Kong people rose up 
and at least half a million of them demonstrated and the government backed off people resigned and um, it and and it didn't happen the Communist Party and the Hong Kong government both were caught flat-footed wow we don't know what's going on mm. how could this possibly be we get the wrong reports being sent from Hong Kong to the central government now we have this again this is the second time that both the party in Hong Kong and the and in and the center and the Hong Kong government, they said until uh, one million people demonstrated on June 9, we had no idea there was opposition. We were just going to force the thing through. Mm. So this is twice they have, I would say, fundamentally, very seriously misunderstood. And the reason which you indicated in the question itself is because of the ideological blinkers um, which prevent them from taking they you know they no longer do opinion polling here the government they used to do that so they don't really understand what people are thinking and I think this is a disaster so the party if, if I was President Xi Jinping in Beijing, I would be saying, you know, this has happened twice. How could this possibly happen? We need much better intelligence gathering in Hong Kong. We need to free ourselves to understand the truth. And remember, Deng Xiaoping said, seek truth from facts. Well, this is not happening. Okay, well, thanks for joining me today, John, and offering such great insight into this rolling political crisis in Hong Kong. And I'll certainly be interested to see what happens next. Me too. <laughs> <laughs>